In episode 89 of MobyCast, we introduced using private subnets for your cloud network. We learned about the differences between public and private subnets, as well as some of the key technologies they depend upon, such as NAT, or network address translation. We also learned that using private subnets comes with a new problem. How do you access these private resources? We discussed three primary approaches before settling on VPN as our choice. In this episode of MobyCast, John and Chris continue their three-part series on using private subnets with your cloud network. We finish our network design by guiding you step-by-step in setting up a software-based VPN and building out private subnets. We also share some inside tips that will make you look like a cloud networking pro. Welcome to MobyCast, a show about the techniques and technologies used by the best cloud-native software teams. Each week, your hosts John Christensen and Chris Hickman pick a software concept and dive deep to figure it out. Welcome, Chris. It's another episode of MobyCast. Hey, John. It's good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. Today, we'll jump right into it because we're doing part two of a series. So this series is the VPC Ninja series. And in part two, we're going to continue on talking about connecting to your private subnets via a VPN. Um, Before we get started, Chris, do you want to just recap a little bit what we talked about in part one? Sure, you bet. So yeah, so in part one, kind of went through just subnet 101 and we'll when you're setting up your VPC and this concept of public subnets versus private subnets, and in, you know, in particular, private subnets and what they are and why we care about them. So things that are in your public subnets are resources that are available to the open internet. And so we only really want to put resources on our public subnets that really need that direct internet access. Um, everything else should go on private subnets, which are not reachable by the open internet. Right, and and to just jump out even a level from there, it's like, the you know, the whole point here is, you know, a lot of times we'll look at tutorials or we'll be learning AWS stuff, and we know in the back of our minds that there are some best practices that we should be using for security and just general setup or just what everybody does when they know what they're doing. And this is part of it. Putting things on private subnets, uh, everything, everything, everything on private subnets is part of being a good cloud native developer. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and we talked a little bit about just how internet access works for resources on private subnets and in particular NAT or network address translation. So we went really deep into NAT, kind of really understanding Mm -hmm. what it is and how it works. That was um, interesting. So, you know, NAT is something that everyone hears the term. They know that I need like, oh, NAT instance or NAT gateway and NAT's going on. But do you really understand what NAT is? If you don't, if you can't really explain it, go back and listen to that previous episode. So it, you may, you're going to learn some things, I think, and you're going to find it interesting. I know I know, I did. And then we also talked a bit about um, IP addressing and uh, physical versus logical addressing. Um, so yep. basically MAC addresses versus which are tied to the hardware versus IP, address, IP addresses, which are logical, which are not necessarily tied to the hardware. And this gives rise to like, well, how can a single host have more than one IP address? Right. And so we talked a bit about that. Um, and then... We said, okay, well now we've we've kind of said, hey, this is best practice. This is a good thing to have these private subnets and put our resources on them. Well, this opens up some new challenges of like, well, how do we access these things? Because we can no longer it's no longer just a simple SSH into it from your laptop at home, right? Because there's there's they're not publicly accessible. So how do you get to those? And so we talked about three different ways of doing that. Basically, broke it down into like physical. And the physical method, the leapfrog method, and the virtual method, right? So physical was mm-hmm. that, like, I need a direct pipe between where I am and my and my cloud. Good network. if you're a data center. <laughs> yes. Are you a data center? I'm not a data center. <laughs> I'm not a data center. Also good if you've got lots of money, because um, yes. it is an expensive option. We talked about the leapfrog option, which is kind of bastion host or jump box, jump host, um, and that's where you basically have one machine that has the internet access that you first connect to, and then from there you can now jump to the private resources. Talked about the pros and cons with that, and then um, finally the virtual um, option, which is essentially VPNs, virtual private networks, and that is a um, uh, you know kind of a the best of all worlds, right? It's um, it's very convenient. It's very flexible. Um, it's got a lots of different options there, ranging from very expensive to essentially free. 
um, and you have hardware options that require hardware, and then ones that don't require any hardware at all. So this week we're gonna we're gonna talk about okay. Now that we've said we want private subnets, we've talked through the various options of how do you connect to those things, and set, we've decided like let's go ahead and focus on we're gonna go with that virtual option, that VPN. So let's go ahead and finish our network by setting up a VPN and building out private subnets inside our VPC, so that we now have this this really robust VPC network design in the cloud that is built on best practices. That's going to give us the best um, mix of security as well as able to, to do things out on the public internet. So this is like a how-to. How are we going to do this, Chris? This is a podcast. Are you going <laughs> to crack open your machine and, and like show us? Well, we're we're going to use this brand new technology <laughs> where we're streaming video to your ears and pictures <laughs> to your ears. Now, I mean, it, this is, um, we're going to walk through the steps. It, I, I think it'll be pretty um, graspable. Is that a word? Yes, um, it is today. It is. It's, language is in flux always. <laughs> and today it just took on a new word. Absolutely. So so I, I think it's going to be something that it will be pretty easy to follow through on. We, I mean, obviously we're not going to go into all the, the specific details, but the, the broad steps will be there. And, and I think it'll, after listening to that, like anyone would have like the recipe, if you will, to go do this on their own. So I think it's definitely worthwhile to, to walk through that. Great. Great. So yeah, should we get started? Yeah. I mean, and before we do get started, I just want to throw some, some ca- a caveat out there. So one like this is, so I'm not saying like this is the only way to do it or even the best way to do it, right? Because there, there are actually other potentially better ways to access your resources on private subnets. So we mentioned in the last episode, one of the, one of the, the new VPN options that AWS offers is AWS Client VPN. And so that is definitely something to, to look at. It's newish. It's, it, was, it was announced back in December 2018. Um, it is software only for remote access users, so kind of really right up our alley of kind of like the, the solution that we're going for that we'll talk about today. But this is something that AWS provides, and it's and it's managed. There are some limitations with it, um, so but that we're going to save that for a future episode. We're not going to talk about that today. So it's, we're we're gonna we're gonna so just keep that in mind that that's out there, but we know about it. That's but we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about that. Okay. And then the other option. Um, that is also potentially a really great option for this kind of scenario is AWS Systems Manager Session Manager. And so this is a tool um, technology that AWS provides through Systems Manager. Systems Manager installs agent software and all the machines um, that you want to manage, and that agent then gives rise to the ability to connect to it. Okay. And so you don't need to have a VPN um, to do this, and you don't have to have an SSH server installed. So it's one of those things that gives you a lot of what you need without having to have a VPN or without having a, a direct connect connection into your into your VPC. Again, there's some limitations there, and there's you know some things you can do, some things you can't. That is, again, we're going to talk about this in a future episode of Mobicast. It's it's such a you know kind of a big subject and yeah i could ask a single question and blow up this entire episode <laughs> yeah you get so don't we're not gonna we're not even gonna you don't even get that option right um so i just wanted to throw out those 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 caveats there that we do know about that and definitely can be very viable but we're gonna save those discussions for future episodes otherwise we would never get through anything today we would <laughs> right right as john said we would blow it up and then the other thing I uh, just wanted to point out is so, um, but it, you know, a great choice for doing this again remain like this third-party software-only VPN solution, which we kind of teased at at the end of the last episode. It gives you a lot of flexibility, a lot of power. It's a great choice. So this, what we're going to talk about today, is still a very valid, good choice for mm-hmm. for you to know about and for you to consider. Let's throw out another benefit of it. It works in AWS and it works in not AWS, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So there's nothing AWS specific about this choice. Cool. Yeah. So you can use this in Azure. You can use it in Google. You can use it connecting to on-prems together if you Mm -hmm. want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. We also did leave out another way of connecting to a private subnet, which is to make a phone call to somebody in the data center and then tell them to tell you what they see on the screen. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Have I ever so, done that? Yes, I have done that. Yeah, that won't work with AWS. <laughs> so, because um, there there are very few people allowed inside those those data centers. Right, right. I do remember back in back in the day when I was at Microsoft with our data centers, um, and you know, it was like. It was much more accessible, and it, I mean, it, it was locked down, and you had to go through several layers of security. But I was spent a lot of time inside those data centers as just deploying services and debugging mm-hmm. because we didn't have the tools actually to do the remote yeah. access, and this was really the only way. And so we would joke that the the operators there would have to put on roller skates um, to replace failed drives, right? Because it's such a big data center, all these rows and racks and racks and racks of servers, and you know. Drives, you have hundreds of thousands of machines, right? And and therefore, hundreds of thousands of drives, like they're going to be failing constantly. So put roller skates on the operator so that they can get to those racks quickly. Yeah. Swap out the drives. Yes. Totally. But, so, but different story now. Um, <laughs> and then a reminder on this: so this third-party software VPN solution that we're going to be we're going to be going with today. You know, so the rationale for choosing that is like it's it is very um, cost-effective doesn't cost a lot of money it's going to work for remote access users so you know you don't need to have an on-premise location you know install a switch or a router or whatnot um and then it's also it's pretty sophisticated that's easy to manage so really like for like broad strokes it's 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 a good solution for for a lot of people out there that, that don't have dedicated network engineers that don't have a huge budget mm-hmm. so we're going to go with that cool all right, let's jump right in. Yeah, and then maybe just a personal story too. Like we we were actually John, you and I were talking about this um, uh, a little right. bit earlier, right? Yeah. Um, where so like I mean I have my own personal AWS account, and that's where I host my my world famous personal blog um, that we've talked about. <laughs> with, I think three page views in the past month, um, but that's another story. But so shows I have my own. Shows you're keeping track though. That's yeah. good. <laughs> Google Analytics. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yes, yeah, so I have my own personal AWS account, and I, you know, I'm running things like ECS, and and these uh, my my personal blog is hosted as a Node.js application, and um, I'm using load balancers, and it's using TLS, and all the kind of good stuff, right? That like we would expect for best practices, um, and. But the one thing that it hasn't had is it hasn't had private subnets. Um, everything has actually just been public subnets, and this is true for like you know, I mean, I created this probably like about four years ago, and um, up until recently, it has been all public subnet. Even though I know best practices, like hey, my database server should be on a private subnet, right? And my ECS mm-hmm. host should be on private subnets. I think it's really common when you're getting started on something that you just don't want to. Fiddle with that, right? It's just easier to kind of throw open all the privileges. Root, you know, you're using root. You're having wide open security groups. You're using public subnets. Like all the things that they tell you not to do actually make life a lot easier when you're getting started on something. No, absolutely, absolutely, right. So and then, it's, it's, but I guess to add to that, it's still not a good idea because you kind of never do get around to fixing all those in a lot of cases. So maybe it's better to just make it like make it easier on yourself to do the right thing so that when you get started on something it's not like a 7-day journey of just following a few best practices that should have been fairly easy if you had taken the time to learn them and get them into muscle memory. So that's what this is about. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean for me personally it was just like this nuance that comes up of okay, once you do have private subnets, how do you connect to those things? That was for me the the thing that prevented me from creating private subnets, right? Because because for me, I mean, there's two big issues. One was just the time involved with going and mm-hmm. figuring out, okay, what what do I want to, what solution do I want to use? And then once I've figured that out, then going and get it installed and configured. So so there was just some, some amount of effort to do that. And then the second thing that was actually a pretty big consideration too was cost. Um, so, you know, this is my personal AWS account. It's coming out of the, the personal credit card. And it's really just for my own learning and playing around with things and then hosting my own personal blog. I mean, how much money can I justify to, to spend on that per month? And so for me to go to private subnets, that means things like I'm going to have to go now pay for a, a NAT gateway. I'm going to have to pay for a, a VPN in some form or another, whether it be like hosting on an EC2 or pay license fees or whatnot. So it's going to 
dramatically jump the cost. And, Which you know, should probably, really be darn close to free, right? Like if if you're doing hobbyist development and you're paying monthly fees, it feels a little bit wrong because all the big companies. In order to attract developers, need to make sure that they're you know not forcing developers that are hobbyists to pay a lot of money out of pocket. Yeah, yeah, and I mean you know there's there is a lot available on the free tier at AWS, um, but you know unfortunately Matt Gateway is not one of them, and mm-hmm. you know so now I'm looking at instead of spending about thirty dollars a month um, to have ECS fronted by ELB and and TLS. Um, Kind of a pretty nice, robust solution, uh, but all on public subnets. To go to private subnets, ended up probably changing that bill to go from thirty bucks a month to about 50, to go to actually it's about fifty dollars more, so probably to about eighty bucks a month now. So pretty significant, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, that is. And you're already you know? paying for cable and Netflix yeah. and HBO mm-hmm. Plus, and you know, mm-hmm. not yet Disney Plus, but that's going to come around next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for the personal hobbyist, for the individual developer, like. It's, this is a real, a real concern, a real issue. If your business, right, like this is not a concern at all. So, no. um, yeah. so, so we're talking to to folks out there that you know, you know, are doing this for for work, um, for sure, probably. Um, mm-hmm. If you are doing this for for a hobby, like I mean, even I mean, go ahead and do all these steps, create it all up, but then just tear it down, right? So you right. know how to do it. You've you've got it working. That way, it's only going to cost you a few bucks, um, and you get to go through this this great process of, of just knowing exactly how to do it. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think we we've we've teased the start of this like three times now. I think now we can finally <laughs> shall finally we get, get started? There, right? Yeah. So okay, so we've decided we want we want a VPN solution. It's we're going to go with a software only VPN solution, and so we're going to go look at like what are the third party options out there and so there are tons of options out there in this space um, ranging from paid commercial products to free open source products you can go to the AWS marketplace and do a search um, for VPN and you will see just a bunch of options there for um, you know manufacturers like Checkpoint Microsoft um, Cisco like i mean just lots of options but again you're going to pay for it as well. There's open source options out there like Soft Ether, uh, OpenSwan, and there is the community version of OpenVPN. There's probably even other ones out there. I'm sure you could run through your spam folder and find four or five different options. <laughs> probably, um, indeed, and um, along with like just yeah. Don't give choose those access, options. Give, give, give us give, give us remote access to your machine. We'll set it up for you because your because your Windows server is up needs to be updated. And right, right, so. exactly. That's um, what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. Please don't do that. <laughs> um, uh, so you know, let's we're, we want to keep costs down um, and still have a, a, a an easy to use, well supported version. Um, like I said, it looked at Soft Ether. It is. You know, it, it's it's a viable option out there, but it is very much one of those things where it's going to require a lot of work. It's not particularly well supported. In the past, someone put together a AMI and put it on the marketplace um, that you could go and use, and that's no longer even there. It's been Ooh. it's just kind of like suffered technical debt and, and rot. So it's um, you really have to go build your own now. Um, again, possible, but a lot of work. Kind of same deal with OpenSwan. OpenVPN, though, there's a company behind it. It is open source, and you, you have the community version, which you can go and doesn't cost a dime, and, and you can go configure all that and set it up and, and run it yourself. But then they also have like the, the paid versions, um, and those are very well supported. They have all the, the, the software around them that um, does the administration and, the, and just the, the setup, right? Just making it so much easier. So OpenVPN, very well supported. Lots of folks use it. It it is one of the ones that AWS would recommend, I think, as as for for a VPN service in AWS. And this comes it comes in two flavors. So one is um, hosted, where you just pay by the hour through Amazon through AWS. Um, when you do that, it kind of works out to call it about $2 a day or $60 a month um, to do that way. But that includes the EC2 um, as well right. behind it. And then they also have, then they have, they have a BYO, BYOL version, right? Which is bring your own license. 
And so this one, you only pay for the EC2 resources that you use. And so like um, for me, in my particular case, I can host this on a T3 micro and that ends up being about $7.50 a month. Um, okay. to ho- and then I just have to take care of the licenses. And so you can buy licenses um, from OpenVPN at um, $15 per user per year with a minimum of 10 users, right? So it's, it's $150 one-time fee. Now you have 10 users, up to 10 users that could use it, and you're good for a year. So you're looking at $750 a month plus $150 a year. That seems fairly startup-friendly, that yeah, pricing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it gives you, you know, 10 users. I mean, that's, again... For, your whole dev you know, team for, like, yeah. a year. Yeah, absolutely. But the kind of, like, the little... Uh, loophole, a really nice thing here is that the if you choose the BYOL version of it, um, you don't actually have to give it a license key um, <laughs> to, to use it. So all functions are available without any time limit. The only limitation is that you can only have two simultaneous VPN connections to it. Ah. So for me, <laughs> yeah, that's great. This is perfect, right? Yeah, hobbyist so, so, level. Yeah. yeah, so th- this is what I did. So I, I went to the AWS Marketplace and searched for OpenVPN Access Server. I chose the BYOL version, and then I'm good to go. So now the only thing I have to pay for for my for for this VPN really is just the seven fifty a month for hosting the T three micro um, on AWS. Mm, that is not an expensive VPN. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what so that's what we're gonna do, right? So so. Let's go in and install OpenVPN Access Server. And what are the steps that we need to do? And so, like I said, what we're going to, you know, the very first step is like we're going to go launch a new EC2. So we're going to go into the, the AWS console, go to the EC2 dashboard, and launch a, launch a, new, um, a new EC2. And when we do that, we're going to go to the marketplace. Right, so the, the marketplace will be an option there for it. Um, we'll click on that, and then we will be able to now search. And so you just type in OpenVPN Access Server. You'll see those those pre-built AMIs. Choose the BYOL version. Uh, okay. And then, so you're you're specifically so looking for an AMI that's provided by OpenVPN. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So now you're just going to go through the normal process, right? Of what if, you know, whenever you spin up a new EC2, right? It's just, this is Mm -hmm. the way the AMI, instead of choosing like Amazon Linux 2 or something like that, you're actually just choosing this AMI through the marketplace um, that's already pre-built for you. And so you go through and you'll tell it, you know, like what VPC you want it on, what kind of um, instance type you want. The one thing that you need to make sure that you do when you install this is just make sure that you're selecting a public subnet for the instance, right? So like your VPN server has to be on a public subnet, mm-hmm. you know, not a, not a private one. Otherwise it's, you're not gonna be able to connect to it. Sure. Makes right? sense. Um, yeah. So, so once we've now spun that up, um, another thing we're going to want to do is going to assign an elastic IP to it. Um, and so that's so that we can have this, this dedicated IP address that we, that is well known that will, We'll be able to to use to connect to it. Cool. Another step that I did is I then I went and I created a Route 53A record for this particular this EC2, and so so I can give it a friendly name, so I can remember it. So if like for me, it's vpn.chrisic.com. Um, so that is now assigned to that to that um, with that Elastic IP. So now I can just always whenever whenever I need to connect my VPN, vpn.chrisic.com. So if you want to try to break into his VPN, it's vpn.chrisic.com. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I have it pretty well locked down, so I, I welcome the challenge. Yeah, PDOS only is what's going to work on that. Because you can only have two active connections at once, so should be pretty easy, everybody. <laughs> well, you have to successfully connect to it, right? So, but can't you, can't like, you, like, doesn't gonna, it count as your choose, failing Who's going to know the passwords? Password one, two, three. So. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so now we so we've spun this up we've 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 got the IP address and now we've got the the, the DNS record for it as well and then there's just some general um, just uh, setup installation admin stuff to do right so it's like you're gonna SSH that in, instance there's an install wizard you just run that when you SSH into it you can then go and definitely change the default password right that's like this is true. Like when probably you should do route. it on your VPN yeah. server. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. admin, admin, not so good. So so change that. Um, update the OS. Those kind of things. 
And then at that point, you can then uh, log in to the web-based UI. Now you can have this really nice way of configuring your OpenVPN server. So one of the things to point out here is that, you know, how do you manage users? So OpenVPN gives you a range of options. So, you know, if you have LDAP, um, it, can, it can use that. If you have a radius, you can use that. It also, but it supports this really, really straightforward, easy thing called local authentication. And so what that is, is it's just keeping, it's, it has a basically a, a, a user database that's local to that, to the machine. Okay. Right? So you don't need any, any integration. It's really easy to do. So you can just configure users right there um, and just here's their username and password, right? And, and just set them up. So it makes it just really easy. This is one of the things that AWS Client VPN does not have you, you can't do with it. With, oh, with, client v, with client VPN, setting up users is much more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine you, that, you have to pull in other AWS services, which is kind of typical of AWS. Like you might have to connect it to IAM or Cognito or something you do, like that. It, they, it actually uses certificates. Um, okay. And but AWS certificate manager. There you go. Kind of. You you actually have to create the certificates yourself using what? using open source tools that <laughs> you then import into Certificate Manager. Remember when I said about blowing up the episode? <laughs> <laughs> there it goes. No, we're get, we're gonna keep moving on. Okay. Another great um, feature that OpenVPN has is it supports MFA um, through Google Authenticator, so Ooh, cool. you can lock it down even more that way. And then the last thing um, you need to do is you want to set up TLS for VPN, right? So you want to be able to access it securely encrypted, um, you know, encryption over the wire. It does come with a self-signed certificate, right? But that's not going to work for like if again if I want vpn.chrisic.com, it's not going to work with that, right? So mm-hmm. this was one of the challenges. Is like, okay, how do I want to do this? Mm-hmm. And so I thought of so there's there's two possible ways I thought. Right. I'm imagining you were thinking about putting it behind a load balancer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that that was my first. It was like, boy, it would be so nice to use AWS Certificate Manager. To, yeah. To I already have a wildcard cert for my domain in AWS Certificate Manager. So wouldn't it be nice to use that? And so, what if I fronted this with an ALB and then? Use that certificate, right? Because with um, the certificates that are created with Certificate Manager, you have to use those with AWS resources, and specifically, you can really use them with ELBs, CloudFront, and API Gateway. So, I'm not going to use CloudFront or API Gateway for this, but ELB, yeah. So, you know, what if I go ahead and create a target group for my my EC2, that that Open VPN Access Server EC2? Add that to an ALB and then have the ALB perform the TLS termination. That was my first thought, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And very quickly discovered, unfortunately, this is not going to work. Um, so, for a bunch of different reasons. So, OpenVPN itself does not work behind a load balancer. Um, ALBs um, in general are really designed for HTTP and HTTPS traffic, so port 80, port 443. Um, OpenVPN uses some other ports as well, um, so that makes it problematic. And then getting health checks to work and just dealing with these other port issues, right? Just kind of, for all these reasons, is like, okay, this is just not going to work all that great. So had to fall back to kind of the... The I, the option I know was going to work all along, but I kind of didn't want to do it, which is okay. We have to go basically create a SSL cert, right, and install it on the EC2 itself. So that's the route that I went. Um, this so, is pretty. Yeah, it yeah. sucks. So like it's rolling back time to 2015. There you it, are, cracking it open really open SSL. Yeah, I mean yeah. the good the good news is is like in the past it used to be it's like wow this costs four hundred dollars right to mm-hmm. go to go get a, a an SSL certificate and it used to take you know days and days for it to be to be made available because they had to do various checks right and whatnot um, that's now changed with now you can do things like email val- email validation or domain um, DNS validation. Um, and then now there's companies that do this for free as well. So Let's Encrypt is definitely one of the one of those free ones. Um, I ended up using Zero SSL, which is kind of like a really nice wrapper around the process for using Let's Encrypt. Okay. 
man. So very quickly, I mean, literally within a matter of, you know, 60 seconds um, using zero SSL, had a, had a let's encrypt SSL cert for, for my VPN. And then I just installed that cert um, using that web-based UI. Um, and then I was, I was off and running. Oh, that's handy. That's nice that they did mm-hmm. that. You didn't have to go dig around in the file system mm-hmm. of the EC2 to figure out where to put it. No. And then change it, you know, schmod to make it executable or something. No, just, just uh, prepare, your, prepare your cert and upload through the, through the web-based UI and, and, and away you go. So Sweet. did that. Very now cool. I have my TLS. And then the last thing for me was just to lock down the security group for the EC2 that was hosting the VPN software, right? So understand exactly like what what ports, um, the minimal number of ports that I wanted open and where I was allowing that traffic from, right? So um, things like I, I still want to be able to SSH into this, but I made it so that SSH is only from inside the VPC. So only once you actually have a VPN connection can you SSH to that particular machine. We cover a lot of information here on MobyCast, and if you've ever wanted to go back and remind yourself of something we talked about in a previous episode, it can be hard to search through our website and transcripts to find exactly what you're looking for. Well, now it's a lot easier. All you have to do is go to mobycast.fm slash show dash notes and sign up. We'll send you our weekly, super detailed outline that we use to actually record the show. A lot of times, this outline contains more information than we get to during our hour on the air. So sign up, and get weekly MobyCast cheat sheets to all of our episodes delivered right to your inbox. So let me just make sure that I know where we are here. We we chose OpenVPN. You started an EC2 instance with OpenVPN's AMI. Then you installed. I'm sorry. Then you con, you configured your like as part of configuring OpenVPN. You set up user or wait a minute. L- like let's back up a sure. little bit after after having the. Um, uh, the EC2 running, you got in there, and did you have to do anything like with the with the command line or yeah? So or you, you just, SS, just so after it's been spun up, we we assigned the EIP to it, we created the, the DNS yep, yep, name for yep. it, we can then SSH in, IS, you just SSH into it. You're going to be presented with okay, hey, run this 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 install wizard. And so you'll go through that. It'll ask you some. Oh, it automatically does that. It's like, hey, you'll, you'll see that the, the message of the day is is configured to to show you this, right? Cool. So, yeah. Sweet. So you go, you go and run that, and then once you run that install wizard, kind of, and it, basically you're telling it what ports to and to to actually start up the the VPN service. Okay. At that point, you can then exit out, um, disconnect from that, and then that's when you now log into the web based UI. Right, and, so, and then the web-based UI is where you're setting up your user accounts using, mm-hmm. in your case, the local authentication. Exactly. Yep. And then you can okay, change cool. things like the host name so that it's now you know vpn.crisic.com, and you can set up MFA and um, those cool. kind of those kind of options and whatnot. And so. And then lastly, you set up TLS, mm-hmm. and you did that by using um, not not the uh, what was the name of the TLS service that or the certificate service that you used um so use zero ssl zero which SSL. is a wrapper and that around let's encrypt let's encrypt mm-hmm. that's right yep. okay cool all right so now you've got the whole thing running and it's behind TLS what are we going to do next yeah so now at this point we have our vpn access to our vpc right so this is we now have a way to access private subnets so let's go ahead and now we need to create some private subnets Okay. Let's let's walk through that real quickly. So, there's a really subtle point you just made. <laughs> it's like <laughs> set up your VPN before you set up your private subnets, and then your life will be easier when you have those private subnets. You don't have to because like you have your VPN and you make sure it works, and then you can set up the you know the private subnets because then you can get into them. You don't have to go for, like it's sort of like um, I'm at, I'm imagining unit testing like. The other way you could have done it is to set up private subnets that you wouldn't be able to access and then set up your VPN and keep banging on it until you can access them. Mm-hmm. That seems like that seems sort of more the, the unit testing approach, but the, the approach that you just mentioned actually seems easier. Seems like less possible things could go wrong if you get that VPN set up first. And you know that the VPN is not going to be the problem. It's, it's set up. Mm-hmm. It lets you get into your VPC. Yeah. And, and it's less risky too, right? So it's like, imagine, say, oh, 
go create my private subnets first. I put my database on there, um, and then now I'll go set up my VPN. Well, in the meantime, you can't access your database, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe it's your your ECS um, cluster or something like that. And like maybe the you're having problems doing that, and that now all of a sudden like a crisis comes up, and you actually need to access those machines. Like, well, mm-hmm. sorry, not going to happen. Um, you have no way to get there unless you, you know, maybe you do have a friend that, that <laughs> works at the data center, <laughs> right, or something like that. Okay, yeah, it's not going to happen. So, anyhow, so if we if we create the VPN first and we know that it works, then then proceeding with with building out our private subnets is is just takes away that risk and again it's now you know it's it's another problem it's not the vpn if you do have problems right right so we talked about like private subnets are just subnets and it's just their routing is different right they're not internally they're not accessible from the internet um is what makes them different from public subnets so so what we're going to do is we're going to create some new subnets that will act as our private subnets. So one thing to consider with this, right, is like, okay, you want to, a subnet is tied to a specific AZ, right? You can't have a subnet that's spread over multiple AZs. And so we know that we want a multi-AZ architecture, right? So that we have more resilience to failures and have higher availability. So at the very least, you want at least subnets in two AZs. And, mm-hmm. you know, in general, like if you can go to three and if your region supports that, then that's even better. Right. So like, you know, again, a good example would be like if you had two AZs with 50 percent of your load in each AZ, if an AZ fails. Right. And that means 100 percent of your load is now being brunted by the single AZ, which may be a problem. Sure. Versus if you have three AZs and, and a third of your load is spread across each AZ. If one fails, then it's now half the load is on each of the remaining two AZs, right? Which is a lot more more doable. So, so we're going to choose. So I, I'm running in US West two, um, Oregon, and that currently has four AZs available. We're going to choose three. So let, let's go create three new subnets, one per AZ. So we're going we can go into the console there, go to the VPC area, go to subnets, and just create new subnet. We can. Um, pick our uh, CIDR ranges. And so for just kind of keeping things simple, you know, for me personally, especially since this is for my own personal site, I can use a slash 24 range, which gives me up to, it's basically 256 addresses, right? It feels perfect, right? It's like more than you'll ever need, but... You know, it definitely f- for for like a personal account for sure. Like slash twenty four is a is a, is a good choice. So so create three subnets. I I will I'll put them in each one. Obviously, making sure each one is in a different AZ. Um, and so I'll name them something that makes um, sense to me. So it'd be like private dash A for this private subnet that goes into the US West two A, and private dash B that goes in US West dash two B. Private C for US West 2C type thing. So we now have our three subnets spread across three separate AZs. The next thing to do is we need to create a new routing table. And so this is going to be our private route table. So there in the VPC section, there'll be a route table option over on the, the left side. So we'll click that. We'll now say we want to create a new route table. And in this route table, Subnets get a route table associated with them, right? So let's just define what a route table is, real quick. It's it's a thing that's gonna in your mind as you imagine the network. You can imagine it living on the routers that sit between where all your computers are and the rest of the world, the rest of the internet, so to speak. I mean, that's maybe not exactly where they are or what they are, but for for all intents and purposes, it seems like a fair enough visual to have in your mind that there's this little machine. That sits between your computers and the internet. That tells your that your machines can talk to to figure out what they what they're going to do when they do stuff. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. Think of it as it's you have a path. So you have some. It's a router, right? And and they're on the router is going to live this route table. That's what I'm getting at. There's, I, I imagine, like a physical device, but it, it probably isn't. But it, it's in charge of deciding where things are going to go, wh- where messages or packets essentially are going to go. And the reason that I like to picture it between. My subnet and the rest of the world is because uh, it can talk. To, you know, every single one of the computers on my subnet can talk to it directly without any other, without talking to any other machine. That's kind of the main thing I'm getting at. 
they all have direct wired up access to this thing, whatever this is, essentially. Yeah, maybe there's, there's again, I don't know what really is happening. Yeah. Like, sorry to interrupt, but I don't re- know what really is happening on the floor in the in the AWS data centers, and it could be that you know my my entire subnet is like in just two actual computers and even though there's several several VMs like I don't know what's really going on and the router could be just some software running somewhere um and it could be that there there's even multiple hops to get from those machines to that to that router but but in my mind like as I think about this I like the machines that are running that I'm that I'm setting up a a a route for they have to be able to know where to send packets, and so they need to ask. They need to query a route table. Basically, hey, route table, tell me, tell me what to do with this. So that's exactly what a route table is. Basically, just a lookup table, right? That kind of says, okay. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, the route table lives on every machine, right? So when you when you assign mm-hmm. a route table to a subnet, basically any resource spun up in that subnet gets that route table loaded onto its machine itself. So. When the computer, so when your EC2 host needs says, "Oh, my networking, I need to send a packet to this particular, this other particular machine," it's going to look at its route table to figure out where it should send that packet to. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's the instructions that, for that's a little bit of a yes. You're right about that, but also you can change the route table locally. So you can actually break your routing by just going on to your route table inside Linux on a specific machine that's in that subnet and break its connection or break its networking by just changing the route table there or augment it, not just necessarily just break it, but augment it or change it. So what I think you're getting at is the whole protocol of the way route tables are like, they have kind of like DNS itself. They have like a hierarchy to them. And like, I think what, what you're essentially saying is like at the router level, that gets copied down to the local level, but you can still change it locally too. Like a router has its own route table. Mm-hmm. Just like computer, each computer has their own route table and they may get them from different places, right? So like, but it's just, it's just, it's again, it's just a lookup table that says, okay, I need to send a packet to this IP address. Like the route table tells me how to do that. And if there's no, if there's no range in that route table for that particular IP address, then it has it has no idea where to send it, so it can't, mm-hmm. right? So it just gets dropped yep. on the floor. Yep. So, but route, you know, a network networking, actual physical networking equipment like a router, it it just has its own route table, which that's going to be perhaps even different, right? Then, yeah, I guess I really do want to understand this because this has always been one of the things that's confused me about using AWS. And maybe, maybe if you can help me through this, uh, other people will learn from this too. So I, I was trying to say that the route tables live somewhere else. And the reason I was trying to say that is like, you literally don't configure it on every machine. You literally are not in each machine setting up a route table when you set up a private subnet. In fact, you might not even have any machines in your private subnet. In fact, when you create a private subnet, you don't. There's nothing in there. But you're setting up a route table. So where is that thing? And I guess my question is, is it living on a router and then get, getting copied to every machine? Or is it living somewhere in like an S3 bucket or something? And as machines get spun up, there's some software that knows to go and place that route table into each machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, for AWS in their case, like this is just a service, right? So it's it's all software. So it's just somewhere so that when a when you spin up an EC2 inside of a subnet, right? It just it's that's all software and and it's part of its initialization and configuration. It says, okay, what's the what's the route table associated with the subnet, and now configure that EC2. Its local its route table is now has that information. Right, so mm-hmm. and so that's its route table now. Mm. And if you make change, if you make changes to that, right? If you make changes to that in the VPC console, right? Then those changes get pushed um, to the right, machines that right. are there as well. But it's it's all there local to the EC2, so that when it when it right. wants to send network packets, like it's it knows where to go. So I think I think something that I said was incorrect. Then let's correct something I just said, which is I was like. Sort of suggesting that this route table concept is hierarchical, like DNS is, and that maybe there's like a master route table and individual route tables. That's not true, is it? No, not true. Okay, so that was incorrect. But the reason I got to that conclusion is because you can make a route table without any machines in your network. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh well, it must be for something. Maybe it's in the router, mm-hmm. right? See how see how I deduce that? Like a route table has got to be somewhere. Maybe the router is like 
owning the route table and, and like the machines as they go on or using the router's route table. But no, 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 that's not it either. It has its own route table. The machines have their own route table. And this route table that you make in AWS is just like, I guess it's just a file that it's storing somewhere and then applying to each machine as it loads up. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I mean, cool, and, cool. and so the, the subnet's not complete without a route table, right? So like you couldn't, like if you then if you didn't define a route table for a VPC, even though there's no, I mean, for a subnet, even though there's no machines in it, well, once you did put a machine in it, then it's like, what? Well, it's networking's broken, right? So it's mm-hmm. the, the subnet definition was incomplete without the route table. It's so wildly confusing for me because so much of what you do on an AWS Linux machine is like, you got to do it. You're in there and you've got to actually set it up yourself. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to update the operating system, like, Go update the operating system, log in and update the operating system. But other stuff is like handled in the console sort of separately, like this route table thing. Yes, it is something that the operating system actually needs to get into itself and has to be installed in there. And you could go, like I said, you actually really can go change it. Oh, absolutely. Like, and this is a whole nother topic. We'll talk about it in a future episode about how Docker works. But like when you're running containers, like, they're manipulating route tables, right? Like yeah. to, to set up these other networks, right? So there, there's a there's a private Docker network that gets created, right? And that's all done through mm-hmm. route tables. And like, how does container networking work on on a particular machine inside Docker? Like, this is all route tables, right? Um, IP t- IP tables and whatnot. So so knowing the difference between the stuff in the AWS console that kind of applies to like, well, this is how the hardware is configured, and that sort of over like. Infrastructure, I guess, with a capital I, versus the stuff that's actually configuring the operating system of the machines that you fire up is tricky. And there's not like a line in the console that's like everything above here is like, you know, wires and machines, and everything below here is your operating system stuff. Mm-hmm. That would be kind of nice, huh, from a user experience perspective. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think the line would be so so clean. It would it would I think it would end up being like a circle, like that looked like a blob. You know, it's, it just it just wouldn't be clean. Mm-hmm. There's just so much going on, and and things have blurred between like things that used to be in hardware are now in software. Things that used to be in software are now in hardware. Sometimes now there's special chips being made for for certain. I mean, it's just it's yeah, always yeah, yeah. it's always changing, right? Yeah, yeah. But the principles are there, right? Like that's not right, and that that's why like. If you understand networking 101, then like setting up a VPC ends up being like, yeah, I, this makes sense. I understand this, right? I can use some of the same concepts and techniques. These all apply. Like how they actually get implemented might be different, but the the concepts apply. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So so we have yeah. So we have our private route table now that we've created. We're now assigned that to our to our private subnets. Um, another thing we'll want to do too is we'll just want for for the for the VPC that we're putting these subnets in. We'll now want to make sure that this new private route table is the default, the main route table for the whole VPC. That way, when we're creating subnets, by default they're going to be private, and we have to manually change the route table to be the public route table to make them a public subnet. So it's just. Again, kind of a best practice type thing to err on the side of being more conservative um, with the access. So after we have the route table, then we need to actually to to leverage it to actually get out to the internet. So that's where the NAT gateway comes in. So we need to create a NAT a NAT gateway. Um, so we talked all about NAT in the previous episode. Um, right. AWS has a service NAT gateway. It's managed. It's, it's scalable. It's um, up to like forty five gigabit bandwidth. This is definitely the the way to go to do NAT in your VPC. So we just create a NAT gateway. We put it into a public subnet. Very important. Again, it needs to be in a public subnet next to our VPN machine. It doesn't have to be in the same subnet as our VPN server, but it does need to be in a public subnet. Okay. Um, and then assign an elastic IP to it. And then once we've done that, now we can go update that private route table to say, okay, for all traffic that's not internal to the VPC. We'll add a catch-all route that gets and that forwards to the NAT gateway. So basically, this says like, hey, if this network packet is going to some somewhere other than inside the VPC, aka it's going out to the internet, then here's the catch-all route for that 0.0.0.0/0, which says everything else, and that goes to the NAT gateway. And then the NAT gateway will then make sure that that now goes out through the internet gateway. Um, and now this way. Machines on the private subnets can now make outbound connections to the internet. 
um, through NAT and through the Internet Gateway. Right on. And it's backwards from that, right? Like the, the first statement in the route table is like, hey, everything in this route using the slash 24 um, for your kind of sitter block, like everything in this, inside this subnet, whatever the numbers are, and then slash 24, basically to say this range of IP addresses stays inside. And then you say 0.0.0, everything else goes out to here. I think that's the way it gets displayed to you. It doesn't matter what order you create it in because at the end of the day, it's the most... Well, wouldn't it though? No, because like, with hey, route so everything... tables, the most specific route wins. They're not applied in order oh, okay. like Knackles. Oh, no, they don't, they don't get okay. applied in order like Knackles, right? It's the most specific okay. route wins. Secrets of the pros yeah. right here. <laughs> well, otherwise it would be chaos, right? Like this would be the, like everyone... Could you imagine yeah, it would be, the right. uproar? Because like everyone would be caught out by this and they'd be like, why do you make it this way? You know, so cool. Yeah, so and and that's it. So the last step is just then we can just test and verify that now our VPN's working and we can access our something on our private subnet. So like me personally, I just spun up a, an EC2 on one of those private subnets. It didn't have a public IP. It's just the private IP. I then enabled um, a VPN connection, and then I did SSH from my laptop into that private IP. And first time was a charm. Um, there you go. Um, so. We now at that now at this point we have it set up. We have our VPN, um, and then we have our private subnets, and we have machines on those private subnets that are not accessible from the open internet. You have to have the VPN connection in order to connect to them. Wait, I miss. Okay, I missed the part where the VPN on the public subnet was configured to be able to get access into the private subnets. Well, it's it gets that by default, right? So like because it's inside the VPC. So it's using the public route table okay. and the public route table has a route in there that says, okay, for anything, like it can talk to anything inside the VPC. So the entire VPC can see every, can see itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, okay. You'll see this by default. Like this is what route tables will add for you when you, when you have a route table in your VPC. In fact, in fact, I believe you can't even change it. You can't delete it. Like it's just, it's just there. So. Oh, seriously? Because mm-hmm. I was just about to say, I bet if you wanted to, you could you could actually lock off. You could create like a public subnet that was in the same VPC as a private subnet, like lock the private subnet away from the public subnet, even though they're all in the same VPC. But what you're saying is like, nope, nope. You know, the very first thing that happens when you make a VPC is it gets a route table where everything inside the VPC gets to see everything else. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Ah, this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it, it like doesn't stick. Like it's weird how certain code stuff sticks in my head, but networking stuff for whatever reason does not stick in my head the same way. Yeah, well, and I mean, we again, it's it's a it's a big open topic, right? There's lots of things to know. I mean, this is why AWS in their certification offerings they have one just for the advanced networking specialty. Yeah, right? totally. There's enough information there that it warrants its own certification exam. Right. So I, I think, you know, I guess a part of it is, is just like experience and like miles traveled. Like, you know, before the advent of AWS, it you needed to travel a lot of miles or have a very specific job type to, to deal with big networks, to deal with, you know, right? You had to be sort of an operations person or a network person in order to even think about this stuff. And otherwise, it was kind of set up for you. And, you know, here's your command to get to the thing you need. Mm-hmm. Um, and these days, it's like, hey, you can set up a 100,000 computer network in an afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. But you don't know what you're doing because you never had that job before. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there's only, <laughs> there's only one way to, to, to get that knowledge, and that's to, you know, experiment and to use it and play around with it. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just I wanted to point maybe just a, a few pro tips that are related to this. Um, so one is cider block considerations, right? So like when we're creating our VPC, when we're creating our subnets, we're going to specify cider ranges, right? And so those are going to say like, okay, what are, what are what is the range for IP addresses being used by either the VPC in general, or you know, in the or the particular partitions inside the subnets. Um, and then how big is it, right, with the mask? Um, so we talked about like slash 24 represents 256 addresses. Um, I think it's slash 16 is 64K addresses. Um, and then the smallest one, I think, is slash 28, which is 16, if I remember correctly. So a couple things to keep in mind, right? So you want to make sure when you're kind of having setting up networks, whether it be like if you want to be able to at some point have 
multiple VPCs. Um, you you want to have more than one subnet. Like you want to make sure that it's non-overlapping IP ranges, right? Otherwise, you're going to run into some big big problems. Mm-hmm. So so you want to to make sure. So we'll, and we can break this down into VPC and subnet. So with at the VPC level, um, you definitely you want to allocate a single contain, contiguous. Cider block that's not overlapping with any other VPCs that you may have. Mm-hmm. It's kind of tempting to make it big, right? Um, so just do slash sixteen or whatever like that, right? And um, and now you like, hey, I got all the flexibility in the world. But you, you need to be careful of that because if you if you do make it too big, you're going to run into problems potentially with overlapping IP IP ranges. Mm-hmm. But if it's too small, right, you're going to run out of IP addresses. So it really, it, you wouldn't run into that at the VPC level. You wouldn't run that into that unless you tried to do something like peering your VPCs, right? Like, oh, it, it, well, if it's if it's too big, right? If you if you let in like hundreds and hundreds of thousands or millions of computers in your range, the only problem that would that would happen is if you tried to have two VPCs uh, and then peer them, and then all of a sudden your VPCs could potentially have computers uh, with the same IPs because the ranges are overlapping, um, right? Yeah. It, well, it's just don't don't think it's so much as VPCs, just just other networks. And so, just by virtue of having uh, a VPN connection, we actually have another network, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. So, like for me, accessing the VPN from my home office on my laptop, I my particular router, I'm setting up my own private network, right, with its own IP range, mm-hmm. and so. If that overlaps with the private IP of my VPC, I'm going to have problems when I when I establish a VPN connection. So, if your VPC is going to talk to any other networks at all via Direct Connect, via VPN, or via VPC peering, or any other way, then that's when you could have these yeah. these collisions at the yeah. VPC level. And that's why you want to be mindful of your size, right? It's like don't go with the necessarily with the biggest one that's there because that's going to, again, maximize the chances that you're going to have this problem with overlapping cider blocks. So Mm -hmm. be very mindful of that. And it's like, you know, think about like, okay, how, how many IP addresses do I really need here? Estimate above, you know, go above that, but not drastically above that. So like me and my personal account, you know, something like, you know, 1K um, addresses would probably be more than enough ever. If I have more than that, then it's like, hey, I've... (laughs) Um, something's going. It's re- not a personal blog anymore. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. going really well, right? In which case, yeah. we'll just burn it down and start over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's something to keep in mind. It's just your cider block considerations when you're creating your VPC and your and your subnets. Um, and again, it's not just for your AWS networks. It's for everything else that may connect to it, whether it be VPN or on-site or or whatnot. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to just point out is that NAT gateways are are single points of failure. Unlike Internet Gateway. So Internet Gateway is not per subnet. It's multi-AZ. NAT gateways are single AZ. And so that means that if that particular AZ goes down that the NAT gateway is hosted in, well, you have no NAT anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So for best resilience, you really want to have multiple NAT gateways, ideally one per AZ. That way, if an AZ does go down, it's only affecting the resources in that AZ. So what you do is you'd, for every single one of your AZs, you'd create a NAT gateway, and then you'd have separate private route tables, one per AZ, and each one of those private route tables would then forward to its particular NAT gateway. So that way, if, if AZA goes down, then, and it was using the NAT gateway and AZA, um, the, the other two, B and C, are not affected whatsoever. So a typical thing that people do is they'll just create a single NAT gateway and think they're good, but mm-hmm. they'll find out that if there's an outage in the AZ that that NAT gateway is hosted in, then now all of their private subnets have lost internet connectivity <laughs> across the board, right? Yeah, yeah. that's terrible. Mm-hmm. And it's also like a, a kind of a limitation when you say managed service, it's like mostly... <laughs> like, not well, quite. it's managed. It's just single AZ, unfortunately. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. So it's it's not it's not highly available. Yeah. Cool. All right. So yeah. So just I mean a quick summary. So now we have our VPC. It's got public and private subnets. We only have our public facing resources on the public subnets. Everything else is protected on those private subnets. 
And we now have secure access to those private subnets via a VPN connection. So now we can start moving applications onto our private subnets. But I think that's going to be in the next uh, future episode of MobyCast. Sounds good. Well, this was this was pretty interesting. You know, I learned a lot. Like just just about how how this stuff fits together. Stuff that I've used and clicked on and and had in my own systems. Um, yeah, thanks for educating me and, and getting me over a couple of hump, you know, a couple of like learning hurdles that I had. Thanks so much, Chris. Awesome. Thanks, John. Yep. Talk to you next week. See ya. Bye. Nobody listens to podcast outros. Why are you still here? Oh, that's right. It's the outro song. Come talk to us at mobicast.fm or on Reddit at r slash mobicast. <laughs>